Christmas season where we celebrate the fact that you came down from heaven, that you are the bread of life, and that you have given yourself for us. Thank you that we have an opportunity to study your word and even things that aren't in your word or even better said, in between your word. So I pray that this will be a, a blessed time that will bring clarity and more understanding to the things that you have revealed to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, good morning everybody. Um, before I begin, I would just like to say, if anybody wants a Christmas tree and doesn't have one, we are, the Ben uh, Nudie and I with the Boy Scouts, uh, we have extra Christmas trees from our sale. And so we are giving them away. And uh, so if anyone wants one, talk to Ben, not me. So, uh, or you can talk to me, but I'm going to be leaving after church today, so Ben will be available. So, notes are coming around right now. Thank you, Alistair. Okay, so today we are taking a break from looking at the history of the church moving away from the New Testament as we, you know, move through history. I wanted to do a... Uh, Something that was theoretically kind of Christmas-themed, uh, separate from the, uh, the festal oration of Gregory of Nazianzus, which we talked about last Sunday. And uh, I, I have to warn you guys ahead of time, this initially started off as a... Uh, I wanted to talk about who the Herods in the Bible were. I mean, obviously one of them plays into the Christmas story... And, uh, and so that was my initial intent, but as I got up this morning and was writing these notes out, because um, I usually, I have a bad habit of not really writing my notes until about 6 or 6.30 in the morning. Um, <laughs> so I, I started working on these, and it just really, really metastasized into something that includes the Herods, but really I wanted, I, I just kept thinking, well, I can't talk about this before I talk about that, and I can't talk about this until I talk about that. And so I kept moving further and further back into what we call the intertestamental period um, until I was just talking about Daniel. And, uh, and, and, and so what I want to talk about today, we'll get to the Herods, but I want to I talk about really the end of what I want to get to is how did the world that Christ was born into come to be? How do we get from Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi to Matthew and Luke? Does that make sense? I think that's, that's something that's worth talking about. So that's, that's really what I, I want to talk about, to, about today. We will get to the Herods and we will talk about them. But the, the end goal is, is to bridge the gap, to, to talk about how we go from the end of the Old Testament to the Gospels. And there's, does anyone know what the gap in, in time is between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament? How long? What was that? 400 years. So there's 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But a lot happened. A lot happened to 
the world. A lot happened to the Jews. A lot happens in Jerusalem. A lot happens to David's family. And all of that is going to have bearing on the state of the world that Christ is born into. And that's what I want to talk about today. So, so for Christmas, we're going to go to, I thought, just as a framing uh, method for the beginning of this was to look at Daniel. Uh, because Daniel gives us a vision of the world looking forward from the end of the New Testament. So as it's, he's one of the, he is writing concurrently with Ezra, Nehemiah, maybe just a little before them, Malachi, but he is, he is at, he's writing at the end of the Babylonian captivity, when, when the Persians have defeated the Babylonians. We'll get to that in a minute. And incidentally, I just think this is interesting about Daniel, is the Jews do not consider him one of the prophets. So when we look at our books in the Old Testament, we kind of lump Daniel in with the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. But he, he is, the Jews don't consider him that, and they, they don't because of the, the way that he reports his visions. He, he was not functioning as a prophet and, and having a, a discourse or a dialogue with God, but rather he was inspired by the Spirit and was writing down the visions that he saw. And so they account him for him differently. But one of those visions that he sees is in chapter 2, which is the statue of, of many metals. And so he, he sees, or he, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, has this dream. And Daniel comes in and doesn't just interpret the dream for him, but tells him what the dream was before he's even been told what it is. And then he interprets it. And he interprets it and he tells him that this statue of the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver and the, the torso and the thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of clay and iron all represent different empires that are all... And the, the thing that ties them all together is they are the empires that are going to, one after another, control the land that God had promised his people. And implicitly, God's people. So, because they are going to go back to the land. And so, that the first of these empires, and so, do you, if everybody, does everybody have the notes now? Are they all handed out? Okay. So on the first page in section B, um, Daniel, I, you know, we, we, I discuss what these four empires are. So the head of gold is what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And they are the dominant, through most of the Old Testament, I don't want to say most, once we get to Samuel, Kings, and that period going forward, most of the the historical narrative of the Old Testament, the big kid on the block are the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are going to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, and they're going to threaten the southern kingdom of Judah. But the Assyrians are going to be wiped out, and they're going to be destroyed very swiftly by what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And it's the Neo-Babylonian Empire because there is 
way back, a thousand years, more than a thousand years before this, a first Babylonian empire. Is anyone familiar with the name Hammurabi? So Hammurabi is the founder of the first Babylonian empire, and he is the author of what we call Hammurabi's Code, which was one of the first legal systems ever documented in the world. And, and it's, in a lot of ways, it's similar to the Law of Moses, and, and they're actually roughly contemporary with each other. But as the way of all empires go, Hammurabi's Babylonian empire will succumb, and eventually the Assyrians will be ascendant, but then Babylon will rise again under <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar, and he will destroy the, uh, the Assyrian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar will succeed him and rule for almost half a century. And it's during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. that Jerusalem will be captured, destroyed, the temple will be destroyed, and many of the people will be exiled. Now, Nebuchadnezzar ruled as an absolute monarch. His word was law, and there was no one to second-guess him. Ultimately, his empire will be destroyed. Who will it be destroyed by? Well, we, the the Medo-Persian Empire, or what we often call the Achaemenid Empire. It was named after the family that, that ruled it, the Achaemenids. And they are the Empire of Silver. And under them, several significant things are going to happen. As pertains to the gospel, the founder of the Achaemenid Empire, Cyrus the Great, is going to allow the Jews to return from exile. Not all are going to choose to go, though. Incidentally, it's during the exile that there is still a remnant in the land, and many of them, foolishly, and against the words of Jeremiah, you see it in Jeremiah 41, they decide to go to Egypt. And so they're establishing a presence of Jews in Egypt. Now, God condemns this action, and, and I'm not glorifying it, but this is the beginning of a return to Jews during the exile to Egypt that's going to, over time, grow until Alexandria, Egypt, which doesn't exist yet, is going to be one of the major centers of Jewish culture in the world, second only to Jerusalem. So when, Jesus, when Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee to Egypt, it's more than likely that they're going to Alexandria. That's where the Jews in Egypt lived. But the presence there is established during the exile. But Cyrus is going to send the Jews back, and they are going to, uh, and that's recounted in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so there's three leaders of the Jews in their return. There's Ezra, Nehemiah, and who's the third? He's mentioned in both genealogies of Christ. His name is Zerubbabel. So, and he is a grandson of of the king Josiah. He's the son of Jeconiah, who's one of the last kings of Israel, of Judah, sorry. And so he is going to be the first one to take people back, and then Ezra and Nehemiah will follow. That's the empire of silver. The Achaemenids also had 
the uh, distinction of building the largest empire the world had ever seen. It stretched from the Aegean, and I wish I had more time to throw some maps up there, but I didn't have time to do a PowerPoint. But it stretched from the Aegean, which is in, you know, by Greece, all the way into India. It's massive, and it's, it's bigger than anything that had come before it. But it is going to fall prey swiftly to the empire of bronze, which is the empire of Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And Alexander is going to be 23 when he becomes king of Macedon. And at the age of 23, he is going to go out and conquer the world, literally. In the course of 13 years, he will sweep through the Persian Empire undefeated. He will conquer it and expand it. As it's recounted in the historians, when he was at a river in India, it says he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. So he had conquered the known world. But he will return to Babylon and he will die. Still an extremely young man. But his empire will, strangely enough, follow the words of the prophet Daniel. The amazing thing is, is that Daniel prophesized in chapters 7 and 8 that the Persians will succumb to the Greeks, named in that, and that the king of the Greeks, or the, the big horn is how he's described in Daniel, he will be cut off, and that his empire will be cast to the four winds of the earth. Well, guess what happens? Alexander's empire is broken up by four of his generals so that it becomes four separate kingdoms. And those kingdoms, we'll get to here in a minute, uh, but the two that are going to concern us are Syria and Egypt, what we call the Empire of Seleucus or the Seleucids, Seleucus being one of Alexander's generals, and Ptolemaic Egypt, Ptolemy being one of Alexander's generals. They are going to establish Greek kingdoms in these formerly oriental states. And then the last, and we'll spend more time on this at the end, the last, the iron, is the Roman Empire. And it's described as a, you know, a, l later on in chapter 7, it's described as a bee, all the, 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 the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks are all described as beasts that are personified as certain animals. Like the Persians are a bear and the Greeks are a, a leopard, which I think is, you know, is fitting for Alexander. He's, he's lithe and swift and deadly. But the Romans are not likened to any animal in chapter 7. They are a beast, terrible and mighty, with rows of iron teeth, which I think are strikingly memorable, uh, reminiscent of the way the Roman legions fought. They, would, they fought, they had their shields on one arm, and they would just, the enemies would just run up against their shields, and they would just chew them up with their swords, and they would just march right over you. I mean, they were, a Roman legion was a fearsome, fearsome thing, uh, and effective. So, and then, 
and I'm not really going to touch this, the iron and clay, the feet, that's a, that is a, a quagmire of interpretation that I'm not going to get into today. Um, but we can talk about that at another time. So that's the vision of Daniel, and he lays out, uh, you know, the, the passage of empires of who is controlling Jerusalem, the land of the people, and the people themselves. So he, he's laying it out. So who, who was in control when Jesus was born? The Romans. So we, we've gotten to the iron in the statue when Jesus is born. So Daniel lays out the roadmap for us. So any questions about that? Okay. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, we have a little more of the Daniel laying out a little more of a roadmap for us in specifics. And that is... Uh, we find later on in, in Daniel, in, seven, in, in chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 11. And, and it's really with a striking amount of specificity that, there is things, that things are laid out for us. Um, it's interesting, if the beginning of, chap, of, of, of page 2, uh, in chapters 7 and 8, there's a more detail given about Alexander and, and his coming and his total destruction of the Persian Empire. He's not named by name in, in Daniel, but he's called the, the Bighorn. And, uh, but when Alexander... Does anyone know who Josephus is, the historian Josephus? So he was a Jew who was friendly with the Romans, who was present when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. He was a friend of the emperor Titus, the future emperor Titus. So he was physically present witnessing many events, including the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, in 70 AD, not BC, AD. But he wrote a couple of books that are very, very important historical sources. One's called The Antiquities of the Jews, which traces the history of the Jews from Adam all the way to his present day. And then he wrote what's called the Wars of the Jews, which is about the wars of the Jews against the Romans, the final war that led to the destruction of the temple. Were you raising your hand? No. I mean, he would have been... I mean, he probably would have been born maybe 10 or 15 years after Jesus was born. I mean, so he was alive maybe during the crucifixion. Maybe. Um, he may have... We're not exactly how old he was, but he was an adult after Christ was crucified, let's put it that way. So, I mean, his writing career would have been 40 years after Christ was crucified. So, um, but incidentally, Josephus is also one of our most important non-biblical historical sources for Jesus. So, he talks about Jesus and gives us a perspective on him not from Scripture, which a lot of people, you know, like to say Jesus was, didn't even exist. He wasn't even a historical figure. Well, Josephus sure recognized that he was, and he's not the only one, but he's one of our most important. Um, but incidentally, and, and, you know, Josephus is considered an extremely reliable uh, historian, 
However, this part that I want to talk about from the antiquities of the Jews uh, drives secular historians crazy because he describes, you know, keep in mind, he's writing you know, about 70, 72, 73 A.D. He's writing about when Alexander, in the midst of his conquest of the Persian Empire, comes to Jerusalem. And initially, Alexander had asked the Jews in Jerusalem to, remember, they're subjects of the Persians, uh, and the Persians had been good to the Jews. Alexander said, give me supplies. And they said, we are not opposed to you, but as long as Darius, the, the Persian king, lives, we can't aid you. But then, so then Alexander eventually, he finishes the siege he was involved in, and he comes to Jerusalem. And at his side are who? The Samaritans. And the Samaritans don't like the Jews. And they thought, well, the Jews are opposed to Alexander. We're going to befriend Alexander, and we're going to go with him, and we're going to slaughter the Jews. It's going to be great. It'll be a party. And lo and behold, they get there, and the Samaritans are disappointed because the high priest comes out of the temple, comes out of Jerusalem, goes out to Alexander, and Alexander sees him and stops because he, Josephus tells us that Alexander said he had a dream before he had ever left Greece that a man that was dressed like he saw the high priest dressed would tell him he would conquer the Persian Empire. So when he gets to Jerusalem and he sees the high priest, he's like, whoa, I recognize this guy from my dream. And then Josephus tells how the high priest took Alexander into Jerusalem and took him and showed him the temple and showed, instructed him how to perform a ritually clean sacrifice. Having Alexander present in the temple, it probably wasn't okay, but what are you going to do, I guess? I don't know. But then, here's the crazy thing. He opens up the scroll of Daniel, and he reads it to Alexander. This is what Josephus says, and I have a quote here, and it says, and when, so these are in Josephus's words now. He says, and when the book of Daniel was showed him wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that he, Alexander, supposed that himself was the person intended. And as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude for the present and left Jerusalem in peace. So he actually read the part of Daniel that actually is prophesying about Alexander overthrowing the Persians. And he read it and he's like, oh, that's me. That's great. I'm with these guys. And he goes out and he conquers the Persian Empire. I mean... How crazy is that? So, you know, secular historians read that part of Josephus and they're like, this has got to be a fiction. But when you read Daniel and you recognize it's an inspired text, you see that Alexander probably just read about himself in prophecy and went on to do what it said it, he said it was going to, what it said he was going to do. So... How crazy is that? But Daniel's not done, or we're not done with him yet. And chapter 11 is, is one of those, is a really remarkable 
chapter. It's probably my favorite chapter of Daniel. And it gets a little confusing because it keeps talking about the king of the north and the king of the south. And that, that directional component is strictly from the perspective of Jerusalem. So when Alexander's empire is broken up, and we will get to the Herods, we're almost there. <clears throat> when we get to the Herods, uh, I'm sorry, when, when we get to Alexander and he dies and his empire is broken up, Syria to the north of Judea becomes one of the major kingdoms broken out of Alexander's empire. And Egypt is to the south of Judea and becomes another one of the major kingdoms broken out of, out of Alexander's empire. And so there you have a king of the north and a king of the south. And so Syria and Egypt are going to go to war against each other from almost day one. They're both Greeks ruling over native Semitic peoples. And they're not going to stop fighting. And so chapter 11 is recounting the wars of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And near the end of that, uh, in chapter 11, 21 through 32, it recounts a king of the north who is going to go to war against the king of the south. And we can identify from the descriptions that this is a man we call Antiochus IV. He is the king of Syria. And he is a powerful, he's the last great ruler of the, of the Seleucid Empire. After him, it's going to go downhill real fast. And he's going to, he finds that Egypt actually is in the midst of its own civil war. And he says, this is the time. It is ripe for me to pluck it. And so he is going to take his army south. And, and this is recounted in Daniel. You can read it in chapter 11. It starts on in verse 21. And it, uh, he's going to go into Egypt. He is unopposed. And he is outside of Alexandria. But unbeknownst to him, a Roman senator is sent by the Romans. They are now players. They haven't physically arrived in force in the eastern Mediterranean yet, but they are political power brokers. They are the most powerful political entity in the Mediterranean. They have beaten the Carthaginians. They have beaten all the Greek kingdoms except Egypt, which they are supporters of. So they haven't beaten them yet because they're propping them up. And the Senate is going to send one Roman senator, an old man, who's leaning on a staff, and he's going to go from Cyprus, which is where Cyprus was owned by Egypt, and this senator was kind of based in Cyprus, and he's going to come down to Egypt, and he's going to walk out by himself and meet Antiochus, who's riding on a horse at the head of an army. And Antiochus is going to get off his horse, and he is going to try to shake hands with this senator, whose name, incidentally, is Cnaeus Popilius Linus. And the senator is going to hand him a proclamation from the Senate saying, Rome is asking you to leave, and if you don't, it means war. And he then takes his staff and draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus, and he says, if you step out of the circle in any direction other than towards your home, it's war. Like in Antiochus, Rome is not there to fight him, but they will come and they will annihilate him. 
And so he decide, he kind of weighs his options and he steps out of the circle, gets on his horse, and rides back and leaves Egypt. And he is so angry, he needs to take it out on somebody. And who does he take it out to? The Jews. They're the first people he sees on the way home. He gets to Jerusalem and he institutes a massive persecution of the Jews. He goes into the temple and he slaughters a pig on the altar. Is a pig clean or unclean? This is what we call the abomination of the desolation. This is Antiochus IV. And therein lies the end of Daniel's account and the roadmap to get from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of Matthew and Luke. And I say them because they, they are the Gospels that recount the birth of Christ. John doesn't and Mark doesn't. So it's really we're, we're, Matthew and Luke is our target. Daniel now leaves us. And so we, we now have 167 years of history where the Bible doesn't have much to say. So what happens? What happens in that 167 years? That's what I want to spend the next half hour talking about. Any questions before I get into that? No? 167 to about 3 B.C., so 167 B.C. to about 3 B.C. So that's, so we've, through the book of Daniel, you'll find it's, it's, it's actually not 400 years of silence. But God actually leaves a roadmap to get there. The interesting thing is, when the roadmap comes to an end... That's when the Jews go out on their own. It's very strange. So let's talk about it. Who here, and it's okay if you haven't, has ever heard of the Hasmonean kingdom? Okay, a couple. So the Hasmonean kingdom was actually an independent Jewish kingdom that existed before the birth of Christ. So anyone heard of the Maccabean revolt? A few more? Okay. So what is one of our main sources of the Maccabean Revolt? Does any, can anyone tell me that? Yeah, the first, second, third, and fourth Maccabees from the Apocrypha. They kind of form the biggest chunk of the Apocrypha. What is the Apocrypha? They are Jewish writings that were written in the intertestamental period. They are not inspired by God, but they are important documents, and they're worth being familiar with, but they are not Scripture. So they're kind of a, a mysterious, not mysterious, but they're, they're, they're an unusual presence. The Catholic Church does consider them to be Scripture, but they call them deuterocanonical. They call them a second canon, not the primary canon. So, if you ever wonder how the Catholic Church gets the doctrine of purgatory, they kind of wrench it out of one of the books in the Apocrypha. So, <clears throat> so Daniel ends off in chapter 11 in his roadmap to the Messiah, in effect, with 
Antiochus Epiphanes and the, uh, the persecution of the Jews. Well, it's that very persecution that is provoking the Maccabean revolt. And so, but it, the Maccabean revolt is, it, there's, there's other things that go into it as well. And, and the important thing, <clears throat> aside from the political oppression from Antiochus, the other issue at play is, and boy, I, I find this so timely now, but the other issue at play is, is what we call the Hellenization of Jews. So in Greek, the word for Greece is not Greece. They call it Hellos. That's the Greek name for Greek, for Greece. We, we call it by its Latin name, which was Grykia, and there were reasons why the Romans called it that, but that's another story. So, in Greek history, and th- this is important, and you'll see why in a moment, there are three main phases. The part that, we're most, that most people are familiar with are what we call uh, the Hellenic Age. That would be Athens, Sparta, the Persian Wars, Thermopylae, Socrates, Plato, you, you know, not Euclid, he's, anyway. But the, that classical age of, of Greek learning and writing and so on. Prior to that, in, in the, the Bronze Age, we call it Helladic. It's still in Greece, but it's different. But we still use the Hellos name. So it goes Helladic, Hellenic, Hellenistic, and that's the important part. And what the Hellenistic age is, Alexander ushered it in. And what it is, is it's the imposition of Greek culture and Greek learning on all the other cultures of the ancient Near East. Mesopotamia, Phoenicia, Syria, Judea, Egypt. Greek culture, learning, and language is being superimposed on all of them. There's a reason why the New Testament is written in Greek. It's because of this Hellenistic period. It is the language of the the of all the territories that Alexander conquered, whether you know when they broke apart or whatever, it doesn't matter. Greek was now the language of the of the world. If you wanted to get ahead, you learned Greek. If you wanted to get ahead, you learned Greek philosophy, and so on and so forth. And so when we get to 167 BC, we find that there is a struggle taking place amongst the Jews between the Jews that want to hold to Torah and Jews that are okay with adopting Greek ways and Greek culture and Greek philosophy, which is a rejection of, of the truth, although there are elements of it that are close to truth, like Brandon was talking about with the Logos. These are Jews that are going to be very familiar with the term Logos. Why? Because of that Hellenization that's going on. So when the Maccabean revolt takes place, it's not just against the Jews against Antiochus, it's also against the Jews that want to hold to Torah rebelling against Antiochus 
and his allies who are Jews that want to adopt Greek ways. Over time, these two groups of Jews are going to crystallize into factions. What are those factions called? No. The Hellenized Jews, that faction we now know as Sadducees. The Jews that want to hold to Torah, we know as Pharisees. So this this Maccabean revolt is actually really important in setting the stage for the world that Christ is going to be born into. Does it make sense? I mean, it's like you read the New Testament, it's like, well, who are these guys? I don't know. Well, this is who they are. They're all Jews, but they have different worldviews. They have radically divergent worldviews. So, the Maccabean Revolt, and I've got details of it in here that you can read, but I'm not going to go over all of the details. But I will say how it started was out in the countryside. Now, Antiochus is in Jerusalem, and he's hunting down followers of Torah, and he's killing them. He is sacrificing pigs in the temple. He has outlawed circumcision. Well, what difference does that make? Well, he's breaking, he's forcing them to break the covenant. You know, these, I mean, these are targeted things that he's doing. The high priest, he's going to make the high priest, the old high priest who followed Torah is going to be killed, and he's going to make a Hellenized Jew named Jason the high priest. And Jason's going to be assassinated by another Hellenized Jew named Menelaus. You know, Menelaus was the husband, that name first comes to us as the husband of Helen in the Iliad. So, I mean, what's a Jew being named after that guy for? I mean, you know, that's how far off the path they have diverged by this point. You know, which, let's just say I'm not going to reference the state of many Jews today. I'll just leave it at that. Um, but So that's going on in Jerusalem. Out in the countryside, he has told them, you must sacrifice to idols to demonstrate your willingness to get along with me. What does that sound like? Well, that's what the, the Romans did to the Christians. Is they had to demonstrate their willingness to support the regime by making some kind of sacrifice to an idol. I mean, it didn't have to be an animal. You could just throw a pinch of incense into a fire and pray to Zeus or whatever. But, you know, what the Christians dealt with in the Roman Empire, Antiochus is like, he's, he's like the trial run here with the Jews. And out in the countryside, there is an old priest named Mattathias. And he was told, Go sacri- lead this town to sacrifice to the idols. And so they all get together in in the middle of town, and he's supposed to, I don't know what kind of sacrifice he was supposed to make, but he was supposed to do it. But he had a knife in his hand, so I'm assuming it's some kind of animal he has to sacrifice. And he says, I'm not going to do it. And so a Hellenized Jew walks forward and says, well, if you're not, I will. And so Mattathias says, okay, and stabs him and kills him. And then he says, that's what Hellenized Jews need to have done to them. They're traitors, and they're dead. Mattathias flees into the mountains with his five sons. 
And those five sons over the course of the next 20 years are going to lead the Maccabean revolt. So Mattathias, he's already a very old man when this happens. So he's going to actually be dead within a year. And his son Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer, is going to lead the Jews in war against the Greeks. And they are going to be pretty successful. The Greeks are using the old Greek phalanx, which is a very powerful but slow-moving formation. And the the Jews are going to adopt guerrilla tactics, and they're going to be all about speed and agility and using the geography to their advantage. And they're going to ultimately prove successful. They have some some setbacks. Judas is going to be killed. His brother will then pick up the mantle and and his brother Simon will, will pick up the mantle and lead. Ultimately, ultimately though, they will win. And the Syrians will relinquish control of Judea. And they will set up what we call the Hasmonean kingdom. And that's because Mattathias' great-grandfather was named Asmonius. So they saw him as the founder of the dynasty. And incidentally... This new kingdom, which the map I have behind me is a map of the Hasmonean kingdom at its greatest extent. And the different colors just different, represent different phases of expansion. Interestingly, though, the king, the office of king and the office of high priest are going to be combined in one person which is different from the way it was in the Davidic kingdom, where the, the, the Levitical high priest, was that was nowhere near what the Davidic king could do. In the temple of the Hasmonean kingdom, you had the king, who was the high priest, leading all the sacrifices and things like that, and that's not the way it was intended to work. You know, when Uzziah, what happened to King Uzziah when he tried to go perform some Levitical tasks, some very minor Levitical tasks in the temple? What happened to him? Well, he, God immediately struck him with leprosy. This is back in the time of Judah. So, which made him unclean to even be in the temple. And, you know, and it's funny, and it, it says that not only did the priests try to get him out of the temple as fast as possible, but Uzziah himself was trying to get out of there as fast as he possibly could. So I think it's dark humor, but anyway. So in the Hasmonean kingdom, you now have this new order of high priest and king in the, as the same person. And this is going to persist through... So the two great kings of the Hasmonean kingdom are... John Hyrcanus I and Alexander Janias. You don't have to remember those names. We're on the third page, by the way. And I've got about 15 minutes left. Um, so they're, they're going to uh, be the two main rulers of this Hasmonean kingdom. And <clears throat> they're going to lead military they're kind of like the popes during the renaissance where they're you know the religious leader but they're also out leading armies in combat 
It's just kind of a weird image for me to think of a high priest wearing an ephod, but also being the guy, you know, donning his armor and going out and slaughtering guys. You know, it's just an interesting anomaly. But ultimately, so there's Simon, who is one of the five Maccabee brothers. He's going to die, and his son John Hyrcanus will succeed him as high priest and king. And, then, and he will rule for, I don't know, like 20 years. And then his son Alexander Janias, or Janias, will succeed him and rule for 27 years. And then he will die. And his two sons, Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II, are going to vie for the throne. And this is going to prove to be the undoing of the Hasmonean kingdom. Because... While all this is going on, Rome is getting closer and closer and closer. And when I say Rome is getting closer, I mean they are snapping up territories so that the frontier of what Rome actually controls is getting closer and closer to Judea. Until the year 63 B.C., a Roman general by the name of Cnaeus Pompeius Magnus, better known to readers of Shakespeare as Pompey, is going to conquer and finally euthanize the now enfeebled Syrian kingdom. So that great king of the north who began this whole affair, his king, I mean, he's generations dead now, but now the Romans are going to take it over in 63 B.C. And in so doing, that brings the frontier of Rome to the very doorstep of Judea. Now they're right next door. Now there are Roman legions right next door. And so now Rome is going to be a direct player, not just a supporter saying the Senate supports so-and-so. Now they're going to be a direct player. And Pompey is going to come to Jerusalem and find this civil war ongoing. And he does not want a civil war ongoing next to the province that he has just created. And so he is going to look at the two vying Jewish leaders, Aristobulus and Hyrcanus, and he's going to say, which one of those is going to make it easier for me to control this place? And he's going to see in Aristobulus a capable, effective ruler, and in Hyrcanus a bit of a dope. And he's going to say, I like the dope. So Aristobulus gets packed off. And the thing that had made Hyrcanus a, a really viable option for the Jews was not himself, but his right-hand right man, who is a man that we know as Antipater the Idumean. What is an Idumean? Well, that's a Latin term for what we know as Edom or Edomites. So he is Antipater the Edomite. I'll just give you a spoiler alert here. He is the father of Herod the Great. So, so now you, you can see where this is going. So Antipater, and that's a Greek name, when Alexander left Macedon, 
and never to return, he left one of his father's generals in charge of Macedon, and his name was Antipater. So that, that's how this name gets introduced into, into, uh, into uh, history. When we get to, who was, the na- who, was, who was the Herod that Christ confronted at his crucifixion? What was his name? Herod what? No, that, this, Herod, Anti- Herod Antipas. Antipas is just the Latin form of Antipater. So this is, he's Herod Antipater. Or, so he is, anyway, so that's where we're, we're heading with this. So Herod, or so Antipater, he really becomes the functional governor of Judea at this point. The, the Romans give him Roman citizenship, and Hyrcanus is demoted not from high priest and king. He loses the office of high priest. They don't call him a king. They call him an ethnarch, which means a leader of this ethnicity. So he is like the figurehead of the Jews, but he is no longer the high priest. And the real functioning ruler is Antipater. I mean, he's just, he, he, he's actually just the, the procurator. He's actually holding the same position Pontius Pilate would eventually hold. Uh, Antipater is going to control that area for 20 years until 43 BC when he is killed. I'm going over to the last page here. He is killed and his, he, had, he had been involving his two sons uh, in, in government and ultimately one of his sons, Herod, is going to succeed him as in controlling this area. However, because of the instability in Rome, at this time, Caesar, has, Caesar was assassinated the year before Antipater died. Rome is in, the Roman Republic is in its death throes, and in, in the pangs of its death throes, it's also the birthing pangs of what we call the Roman Empire. So it's a period of great instability. There are, there are, there's almost no difference between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, and yet at the same time there is a world of difference between the Republic and the Empire. So it, it really is a watershed shift in, in many, many ways. And in the midst of that unease and instability, Herod is able to, still a friend of Rome, but elevate himself. So now he is king. And he does this in part by marrying one of the last Hasmoneans, who was a descendant of, you know, Mattathias and Judas Maccabeus, you know, the guys that led the revolt. Her name is Miriamne, and he's going to marry her, and he kills all the other descendants of the Hasmoneans and says, well, look, I'm married to her, so I must be a Hasmonean too. I should be king. So that's how he, he kind of cr- creates himself in that position. However, is he able to be high priest? No. Well, that position has already been lost to the king, and he's not a Jew. He converts to Judaism, but he, blood-wise, he is not. He's a descendant of Jacob. That's who the Edomites are. I mean, uh, my brain stopped working. 
Esau. Esau. He's a descendant of Esau, not of Jacob. So he's, he's not a Jew ethnically. He converts to Judaism. So functionally, he's, he's living as a Jew. But this is why Herod, at the birth of Christ, is extremely hypersensitive to somebody calling themselves the king of the Jews. Because in a way, I mean, not in a way, in reality, Herod can never call himself that. He can't be king of the Jews because he's not a Jew. He can be king over the Jews, but he cannot fulfill that role of king of the Jews. Who could fulfill that role? A descendant of David could. God had promised David that his house would would be the only house to be king over the Jews. And Herod was not that. So his solution is to just kill them all. Merry Christmas. So, that... That's the founding of what we call, the the transition from what we call the Hasmonean dynasty to the Herodian dynasty. And the Herodian dynasty is actually going to last for a long time. Uh, So let me just, in the last few minutes, quickly just give you a rundown of of the Herodian dynasty. And ultimately, this is where I wanted, what I wanted to spend the whole class on was talking about, well, who are the Herods in the Bible? Well, so let's talk about that. So there's obviously Herod. So he is he is in a sense the founder, although you could legitimately say his father Antipater was the founder of the Herodian dynasty. But Herod himself is going to have several children. And of them he's going to have I wish I had more time I would have put a family tree up there cuz it looks like a plate of spaghetti. Um uh, for the Herodians. <clears throat> so he's going to have several sons. When, when Herod dies in 4 BC, uh, he, he's going to have his, he, he doesn't want anyone to be as great as he is. So he's going to have his control over Judea. And remember, his control is, excuse me, completely dependent on Roman approval. He is only ruling at the whim of the Romans. And so he's going to give Rome a bigger role to play or they're going to just take for themselves a bigger role to play because when he dies, he is not going to be succeeded by a son. He will be succeeded by three sons and his sister. So all of Judea is going to be broken up into four not equally sized chunks. And so two of those sons that are going to rule chunks. One is named Herod Archelaus, and the other is named Herod Antipas. So Archelaus, there we go, is going to rule this area right here. And Herod Antipas will rule Galilee and this Transjordan area. Now, Jerusalem is still the functional center of Jewish life. And all of these 
four rulers, which we call tetrarchs, which just means Greek for ruled by four. And this is not the only tetrarchy in history. I mean, I talked about one in church history, the tetrarchy, a couple weeks ago. But the tetrarchs, the Jewish tetrarchs, or what we call the Herodian tetrarchy, they would all travel to Jerusalem on a very regular basis. Just because they ruled Galilee or whatever doesn't mean they didn't live in Jerusalem. I mean, that was the place to be. If you were a ruler, you didn't want to go live out with a bunch of yokels. And, I mean, just functionally, it also had the the importance of that's where you were going to go interface with the Romans, which was kind of the the all-important thing that you had to do. I don't know why this thing keeps sliding all of a sudden. Um, so, when, so Herod Antipas, who rules in Galilee, naturally is going to be in Jerusalem on a regular basis. Why would the Romans send Jesus to him rather than to Herod Archelaus or any of the other tetrarchs? Because technically Jesus was his subject. Because Nazareth was in Herod Antipas's territory. So when Pontius Pilate says, you know, yeah, I don't really want to do this. Why don't you go talk to the guy who's theoretically your sovereign? He sends him over to Herod Antipas, not to Herod Archelaus or Philip the Tetrarch. So, I mean, there's a reason why he goes to Herod Antipas. So Herod the Great had another son named Aristobulus, whom he executed. But Aristobulus had a son that, as a young boy, Herod the Great will send to Rome to grow up. And he is known as Herod Agrippa. i got five minutes left. So, the first, who knows, who was the first emperor of Rome? Can anyone tell me? Augustus. So the, the guy that the month of August is named after was the first emperor of Rome. Like literally, the month is named after him. July is named after his uncle and adopted father, Gaius Julius Caesar. So both months are named after those two pivotal uh, people in history. So incidentally, you know, the months of September, October, November, and December, those all have the Latin numbers 7, 8, 9, and 10, but the Romans didn't change them to 9, 10, 11, 12. They just kept, anyway. Uh, thanks, guys. Um, so Augustus uh, is in Rome, and... Herod and his right-hand man through the course of most of his reign. Augustus was a great lawgiver and leader and politician. He was not a general. However, his best friend and like brother by another mother was a man named Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. Agrippa was from a nothing family and was unyieldingly loyal to Augustus. And he rose but he was also a very gifted general. And so he fought all of Augustus's wars. And so Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa is going to introduce the name Agrippa into Roman nomenclature. And so Herod's grandson, Herod, 
is going to be adopted as a Roman and be named Gaius Julius Agrippa, but we know him as Herod Agrippa in honor of his original and Roman names. And he's going to go back and he's, he's going to be sent back by Caligula, who was a horrible emperor, to rule part of Judea. But Herod Agrippa is ambitious and he's going to take over those other tetrarch zones piecemeal until under Roman approval, he's going to be the sole native ruler of Judea. Except how native is he? He grew up in Rome. He grew up in the household of Augustus. He's, a, you know, mentally and citizenship-wise, he's as Roman as anybody else. And this is now the native ruler of Judea. Well, he's going to run his course and he's going to die eventually. But he's going to have a son that we know of as Herod Agrippa II. And it's he that Paul will be brought before and appeal to Caesar and be sent to Rome. So he is the last Agrippa, or last Herod in the Bible. And he will outlive Paul a few years until the Jews have had enough of this erstwhile Jew, not a Jew, but a Edomite. He's, you know, more, more Roman than Edomite and ethnically more Edomite than Jewish. He's just kind of a mess. But they're going to have enough of him. And they're going to kick him out of Jerusalem in 66, in A.D. 66. And that is going to precipitate Roman involvement that will lead to Rome outright annexing the territory, the Jews rebelling, Jerusalem being destroyed, and the temple pulled down. And that is the end of the Herods in the Bible. So... And I will end there. Well, I, at the end, I kind of included one last thing from Malachi. I thought, well, let's, what's, you know, we just went from Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament and beyond. But I love that verse at the, the last chapter of Malachi. It's not quite the last book, verse in the Old Testament, but it's, it's like two away from being the last. That's Malachi 4.2. He says, but for those of you who respect my name, the son of vindication will rise with healing wings and you will skip about like calves released from the stall. Well, the Old Testament is essentially ending talking about Christ rising. It's the solar sun, not the, the relational, the, the son of the father, but he's still the son of righteousness and he will rise with healing in his wings. And where is he born but in a stall? And it's out of that stall that we should come leaping about like calves at Christmas time with great joy. So I will end it there because I'm over time. So thank you, everybody. If you have any questions, you can ask me really quick afterwards, but I, let me close this in prayer. <sighs> Lord, I thank you for Christ. I thank you that he was born in a manger, that... We are able to know him and to know what led up to him, where your word went silent, except it still provided a roadmap. Thank you for letting us know these circumstances so we know that the time was right, the world was ready, that it was groaning, and that the 
incarnation, you, the Son of God, entered into this world to redeem us all with healing in your wings. I pray that you will help us to hold true to that, to hold true to you, that we will not be swayed by the ways of the world like those who are Hellenized, that we will maintain our commitment to you and to your kingdom. In your name we pray.